0: We have been studying the great doctrine of justification by faith in the book of Romans. Justification being that act whereby God declares righteous those who believe, that is, that we are right with him when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Justification has been Paul's main subject in Romans since chapter three, verse 21. And as we've been developing that whole thing, he's explained that justification comes by faith, not works. And in chapter 4, Paul explained the historic roots of justification by faith, going all the way back to Father Abraham because he was justified by faith. Genesis 15 very clearly says before there were any deeds done or any ceremonies or rituals or anything like that. And if you start at chapter 3, verse 21 and underline every use of the word faith or believe in your Bible, you will see how dominant the idea of faith is when tied to the idea of justification. It's very important. And not just faith, but faith in Christ, faith in the sacrificial work of Christ, and faith actually in contrast to human works as a means of attaining justification. You can't work your way to justification with God. You can't. It only comes by faith. Faith apart from works is Paul's language. Another word you can underline each time it occurs is righteousness. We have said over and over that salvation is always based on principles of righteousness. And since man is not righteous, chapter 3, verse 10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one, right? Salvation can only come to us when we are given a righteousness from outside of us, a righteousness outside of ourselves that is not our own. God is willing and God is able to give us His righteousness based on the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But we must put our faith in Him to receive it. Romans chapter 4 verse 3 says, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him, accounted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Then in chapter 5, Paul begins to explain the benefits of justification, what it means, what flows from it, what is included in it. The last time we were together, we looked at the first five verses of chapter 5. Actually, three weeks ago, we looked at peace with God, which is the first thing mentioned right away in chapter 5. Peace with God, what should be the hope of every human being, is actually ours what should be the hope, which is peace with God, is actually ours in Christ. That's what he's saying. That's how chapter 5 begins. The justified don't seek to have peace with God. They have it. It is their possession. It is an anchor to steady us in the storms of life. And that is Paul's next point. Justification has such a pronounced change on our outlook, on our hearts, that we can exalt, he says, in great trials and tribulations. For we realize that we have peace with God. Once we realize that, then we realize that we have standing with God through Christ, verse 2 of chapter 5. And he says, we exalt in hope of the glory of God, verse 2, which means that we are possessed of a triumphant, joyful confidence based not on our righteousness but on His and the fact that we have a standing in grace with God. And whereas earlier in chapter 3, Paul said that all fall short of the glory of God because of sin, chapter 3, verse 23, the justified have a new standing. Something has actually changed with them so that we do not come up short of righteousness because righteousness was put into our account by God, an abundant righteousness that makes us absolutely secure in the grace of God. It's an incredible truth. So praise God, we exalt in hope, he says, a sure hope based on God's word and the fact that God will keep his word, right? So the security in God's favor means we can even exalt in tribulations and that's what he starts talking about there in verse 3. Not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. And then he explains why that's so. Because life's disasters bring us favor, if you will. We find grace in it. Because whatever comes, the favor of God towards us does not change. There are even benefits in these trials and difficult circumstances. Because our faith survives. And when faith survives a trial, you know that it's real. And when you know that it's real, you have a confident hope because you know that God has actually changed you and given you a new disposition of the heart. That is the hope we have in Jesus, to bring us to the glory of God. Verse 5, he says, It is a hope that does not disappoint. Why does it not disappoint? Because, verse 5, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God's love, which we know by God's Spirit in our hearts, sustains us in hope. God's love is unshakable. And by resting in His love, by leaning on Him, and leaning on His love, we have an extraordinary capacity to love ourselves in difficult, challenging, even cruel situations. It is incredible freedom in being able to lean on God's love. But you have to have faith. Faith is essential to benefit from God's love. It must be trusted. If you don't trust it, you're doomed. You have to trust God's love to give you the spiritual capacity to live as a child of God in this world. You have to rest on Him. If you're not resting on Him in faith, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. To be able to exalt to be confident and joyful in tribulation. One must be two things, really. Humble first, before the sovereignty of God, that whatever he determines or lays out as the course of your life, you will accept. Let God be God. And the other thing is one must rest in his love. One must be humble before his sovereignty and rest in his love. And when you can do those two things... There is an incredible power. Humility and faith produce world-changing Christians, people who will change the world for eternity. We are to be people of hope because we know that God loves us and we know the limitless, abounding nature of that love to God's own people. And if we're resting in that, we'll just be different people from everybody else. It's just true. Paul wants us to understand just how unique and marvelous and divine that love is. And that's our, really our text for today, starting at verse 6. Let's look at that. It says, "...while we were still helpless," he says, "...for, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners," Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the Reconciliation. Verse 6 begins with the word for. So this whole discussion in 6-11, through that whole paragraph flows from that reference in verse 5 to the love of God. He's expanding on that. And in discussing the love of God, Paul goes right to that stunning reality that we must never forget. That is, who were you when God loved you? That's what he wants you to think about. What were we like when God loved us? And he uses three different terms. In verse 6 he says we were... Helpless. In verse 8, he says we were sinners. And in verse 10, he says we were enemies of God. There's a descending scale there describing the human condition. And it begins with our weakness, our, our inability to help ourselves. Then he moves to describe our standing before God's justice, which is sinners, lawbreakers. And lastly, he describes the condition we have in relationship to God's rule, his lordship. And God, He uses the word enemy, rebels against His sovereignty. We stand in our natural condition apart from God's grace as enemies of His kingdom. It's really important to never water down what the Bible says about the human condition. Erroneous, sloppy, Theology, sentimental theology that sees us all as wonderful and has that sort of, you know, I'm okay and you're okay um, approach to life is not only not true, because I'm really not okay, you might be okay, <laughs> but I know me. It robs us of understanding God's true nature to play like that. It cheats us from benefiting by God's revelation. The belief that we're all okay really is a manifestation of our status as helpless sinners and enemies. Because men want to make themselves look good. We want to diminish our true guilt. So if we help each other do that, you're okay and I'm okay, right? right. We help each other deny the reality. We make ourselves look good. We diminish our guilt. We make God seem harsh. And mean because why is he so upset when you're okay and I'm okay, right? And he's oh so unfair, at least the God that's revealed in the Bible. It's a very subtle but really vicious assault on God to think that way. But we who are justified, who have been saved by His righteousness, His grace, we who by faith in His person can let God be God and rest in His love, we don't want to diminish Him by deceiving ourselves about our true condition. We're not interested in doing that. We accept His verdict. It's okay with us. It's true. And we're glad to let Him glorify Himself through His love for us. The truth about our condition is what makes His love so unfathomable. That's the whole point. Verse 6 For, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did he die for? The ungodly. Ungodly. The anti-God frame of mind. Anti-God deeds. Anti-God thinking. These are the people he died for. Jesus said specifically that he did not come for the righteous, but to bring sinners to repentance, right? He says, I didn't come for the well people, I came for the sick. He he came to suffer a cruel agony for the ungodly. Then Paul asks us to think about this love of Christ. How should we think about it? He says, let's compare it to the love of men. After all, there are men who would give their very lives for others, are there not? Yes, and and we admire them, don't we? When people can do that, give their life for another person, don't we admire them? We have names for that. Verse 7, he says, One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. In other words, Paul says, yes, it's true that some people will die for other people. In human terms, men will give their lives for others because there's some kinship that... Binds them together in some way. The, the soldier will die for his comrades. I was reading my son's book on uh, Iwo Jima, the, battle, the World War II battle on the island of Iwo Jima, and in the very back of the book, they just have a list of all the guys that won medals of honor and what they won them for. Most of them were dead. They didn't live to get their medal. They got it posthumously. And it was amazing to me how many of them, and there's just one, that one battle threw themselves on hand grenades to protect their buddies. In other words, a hand grenade would land in a ditch full of guys and one guy would throw himself on it and blow himself up to take all the shrapnel in his body to save his friends. You'd have to do that decision instantaneously to give your life for others. I mean, that is obviously the kind of thing Paul is talking about. A parent giving their life for their child, a brother for a brother, an American for an American, or whatever your nationality might be. Usually we're talking about risking one's life for another, but sometimes people are actually called upon to deliberately give up their lives for someone else. And Paul says some individuals would trade their lives for someone else, someone they respect or honor, a good man. Someone they will have a bond of affection for, a a buddy, a a family member, a fellow citizen, something like that. Did you see a couple weeks ago this, uh, I don't know if you saw this issue of U.S. News and World Report, it it just came out two weeks ago, I think it was. The whole issue is devoted to heroes, the whole thing. Heroes. By the way, they took a poll in here, and the number one hero in America is Jesus. I don't know if that's good, because Bill Clinton was number 10, but... um, (laughs) The issue focuses on 20, basically on 20 men and women who are currently living and can be considered heroes. But there's also an interesting discussion of what heroism is in the magazine and um, where it comes from. Now, I like U.S. News and World Report. Actually, I actually subscribe to it because it's pretty straightforward and it's the least sleazy of all the major weekly news magazines. But the one thing that drives me nuts about U.S. News is that they always appeal, always whenever they're discussing something important, they always human behavior, they always turn to biology to explain it. What genetic or biological forces are driving people to behave in certain ways? Always, they always do that. There always has to be a Darwinian explanation for all of human behavior. And of course, often human behavior doesn't fit a Darwinian explanation, and so then their explanations get really funny after a while. They start becoming very amusing. Um, and here's an example of this. This is from the magazine itself. At first, they tell a little story, a great story, about an off-duty police officer. It says, that 1.22 um, a.m. on December 5, 1999, Las Vegas police officer Dennis Devitt was having an off-duty beer with friends when three gunmen burst into the bar, shooting into the crowd. Devitt, 41, a 20-year veteran of the force, pulled a small handgun out of his pocket and ran toward the gunmen, drawing their fire. Devitt's gun was too small to be accurate at anything but near point-blank range, so he kept his finger off the trigger and pressed forward even after one bullet shattered his free hand. Two others slammed into his thigh, another hit his groin. When he got close enough to fire, he hit hit one gunman fatally and scared off the others before collapsing with eight bullet wounds. Please tell my wife I love her, said Devitt, who mistakenly thought he was dying. He actually lived, but he said, I did the best I could. I hope I didn't hit anybody else, unquote. And then the article says, me, me, me. Of all the different kinds of heroism, none is more breathtaking or more inexplicable than selflessly risking one's life for another. And none seems more contrary to human nature. Darwin's survival of the fittest theory clearly implies that selflessness is an evolutionary dead end. And nobody passes economics 101 without a lesson on how it would be irrational for people to do anything but pursue their own financial self-interest. In experiments over the past 30 years, Arizona State University psychologist Robert Chialdini has shown that human heroism seems to be controlled by the same selfish genes that make animals more likely to rescue relatives. Researchers have found that people, on average, say they would risk more to rescue a son or daughter than a cousin, and risk more for a cousin than for a stranger. Duh. <laughs> uh, but Cialdini is not stumped by the Officer debits of the world. Now, here's his explanation because obviously this policeman did this without regard to whether they were cousins or sons or brothers. Says, um, early man traveled in tribes of 25 to 50 people. Most of them related, he explains. Darwinian natural selection rewarded those who helped out their fellow tribe members, he believes. So, the people we call heroes today are those who, for some still mysterious reason, seem to have adopted all humans as members of their tribe. Okay. Some... Mysterious reason. For some mysterious reason, the Darwinian model just doesn't really fit. That's what he's saying. Traditional categories of morality, such as love and courage and self-sacrifice, are relegated to this unspoken category of some mysterious reason. See, an old-time philosopher, not a modern philosopher, but an old philosopher, would have been able to answer that question really easily about what this is, these qualities of human nature. The real reason, of course, is that man is made in God's image and has a remarkable capacity for moral action because God is a moral being and we're made in his image. But I think also you do see the fallenness of man in some of this research data that these guys do. It is true that as a rule, as a rule, people will risk more for those they identify with than those they don't identify with. That's true. Makes sense. And and usually that's because you have a, a personal connection with somebody rather than a a stranger. In fact, I cannot think of an instance historically where a human being deliberately, not just risking their life, but deliberately gave up their life to save an enemy. I can't think of an example. There might be one. Maybe you have an idea in your mind, but I can't think of one. Now, I do know that army medical personnel, uh, at least uh, I know specifically when this has happened, have risked their lives at times to go and rescue enemy soldiers that were wounded. I know that that happens. And sometimes they lose their lives doing that. But I'm thinking of somebody one-on-one making an exchange of their life for an enemy's life. I can't think of any cases in history where that happened. Who would take the death blow in exchange for one's enemy? Who would do that? When has heroism gone that far? Well, it did go that far when a man was brutally flogged in a Roman barracks 2,000 years ago, pummeled and whipped and beaten and spit upon and his beard pulled out by the roots and then led away to an agonizing public death on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. Love took Jesus down that path. Verse 7 again, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the pronouns. Us, we, us. God's love is directed toward us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us, it says. The word demonstrates in verse 8 is in the present tense which in Greek indicates a continuous action. God is demonstrating continually His love toward us in the death of Christ for sinners. His death applies for you by God's love and grace just as much as it did 2,000 years ago. It's just as current today as it was then. He doesn't change. Now, don't miss this. What, he, what he's saying. The judge loves the condemned. The lawmaker loves the lawbreakers. So he says in verse 9, think about what this means. Much more than It's even better, he says, that the infinite God of the universe whose rules you've broken and whose holiness you've ignored loves you. It gets even better than that. He's going to tie in justification. He says, Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Wrath is that divine anger expressed in judgment. It's real, but it will never touch the one who has been justified by the blood of Christ, ever. Jesus took that wrath upon Himself. What you deserved, He carried. He bore it. It is positively heroic and beyond human heroism. But it's so much more than that because He gave up so much more. Nothing compelled Him to become a man and endure our scorn and submit to crucifixion. Nothing compelled Him to do that except divine love. Verse 10, He says, For, and the thought continues, now with the idea of our enemy status, For, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now notice again the use of this term, much more. He uses it again. It occurs several times in this chapter. Much more means the good news is getting even better and better. First, the contrast is greater. Now sinful man is declared an enemy of God. But as enemies, even as enemies, we were reconciled to God, brought back into a right relationship with Him through the death of His Son. Now He says, much more, having been reconciled, that's an aorist verb, a completed past tense event, having been reconciled, it's a done deal, we shall be saved by His life. His death achieved justification and reconciliation, but by His life, His resurrected glorious majesty, He keeps us. And that's the emphasis here. Jesus' own words in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand, he says. That's exactly what he's talking about. He keeps us. John 14, 19, Jesus said, Because I live, you will live also. Finally, verse 11. Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We exult in God. We are triumphant and victorious in Him. Verse 11 is sort of a capstone, a summary of all that he's been saying about how this incredible truth should shape our hearts and should thrill us. It's completely unabashedly Christian, unique. It's not this generalized sort of religious stuff. It reflects the human response to the actual saving work of God in history and in the life of all who believe. We exalt, he says, not in ourselves, not boasting in ourselves, but in God. And not some God, but the God who has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ because only Jesus demonstrated a love which reconciles enemies, dying for enemies, You know, the ancient world, they just didn't understand that. The Romans were always criticizing Christians because they liked sinners. Roman religion did not approve of sinners. Sinners were excluded. They couldn't imagine a God dying for sinners. But to those to whom God revealed His grace, that's the best news in the whole world that God loves sinners. Reconciliation with God, peace with God, receiving the love of God, being right with God, when you hear those things, can you say that you know those phrases describe you? Are you sure they describe you? Are you reconciled with God? Do you have peace with God? Have you embraced God so that you received His love? Are you right with God? If you can't say a confident yes to those questions, let me just encourage you to put all else aside until you can answer those questions. Make that the goal of your life to pursue the answer to that, to find peace with God, because it's right there available for you. And we would be happy to help. It starts with humility. Blessed, Jesus said, are the poor in spirit. But don't let the greatest reality in life pass you by a love that is un imaginable in human terms is true about God. He loves even his enemies. Be reconciled to him because that's what he wants. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for that love that is so inhuman. Thankfully so. Oh, indeed. What a great mercy you have for those who really couldn't care less about you or what you want in this world. And that you would condescend, Lord, to become a human being, to live in the flesh, to be born, to grow in this world, to be treated so dismally, simply to reveal your love to us. What can we say but our hearts be filled with gratitude? We thank you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to pursue knowing for sure that we are rightly related to you if we are not. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.